Amen. Luke chapter 2 is where we'll be. We'll look at verses 1 through 20 this morning. I don't know about you, but I'm one of those weird people that likes Christmas movies. I grew up watching uh, Christmas Vacation with my father. I love, he would laugh at the same parts every single time. He would act like it's the first time we've ever seen it. Guys, watch this. This is where he does this, and this is where he falls off the ladder. Guys, come, you know, just get us and rally around. Then every single Christmas day, I grew up watching the Christmas story, a.k.a. The Red Rider BB Gun movie. And um, those became a part of my uh, Christmas traditions as a kid. One of the new traditions is now watching Elf. That's actually, for my generation, it's a new movie. For some of y'all, it's like a classic. But for my generation, I'm kind of trying to like it more and more every single year. And I'm trying to call it a classic now. And maybe for some of you, it's you just like the old classics. You like It's a Wonderful Life or Miracle on 34th Street. I won't ask what year you were born, if you like those movies. But hey, we're glad that you like those too. Uh, I still think the best Christmas movie ever is Die Hard. This is my honest opinion, um, but don't tell anybody. Um, And so in all these movies, there's a moment of peace that begins. And in the middle of those Christmas movies, there's always like this sense of chaos. And then at the end of the movie, it's always what? Peace is restored. That's true of most stories, good stories in general. You think about the famous Christmas movie, Home Alone, you have Kevin McAllister. Everything seems, it should be peaceful. He lives in a massive house with a super rich dad, which I always wonder what he does. Like he has this huge house and he's gonna send everyone to Paris on his dime. Like what a sweet guy. I wanna be in his family, right? And why is Kevin upset? Like, dude, you realize what you have. Like your, your dad bought you a cheese pizza just for you. Like get over yourself for a moment, right? But what happens is he learns his lesson. Why? Because his family leaves him. They go to Paris. They leave him behind. If you haven't seen this movie yet, it's on you. This is your fault. This is a spoiler alert. I'm sorry. But hey, um, they leave him alone. He's by himself. And then what happens? And you have the intruders. You have Joe Pesci and the other guy. We never can remember his name. And he has to set up all these traps and he gets these criminal, criminals to not break into his home. And then he somehow magically cleans up a house perfectly in like three hours. I have no idea how that happens. We need to hire that kid. Um, and so it's cleaned up. The family comes back and then you see what? Peace is finally restored and actually is restored better than the way it was before. And it seems that all Christmas movies or really all great stories are like that. They begin with peace, then there's chaos, and then there's peace again. And this is really the story of the Bible. And believe it or not, this is the story that you and I find ourselves in like right now in 2022. This is a story that you and I exist in right now because this is God's redemptive story. You have in the very beginning of the Bible, you have Genesis chapter one. There's no story that opens up as peaceful as Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one is this beautiful poem. It shows God's creation. It shows God's rhythm. Everything that God creates, he saw that it was good. He made male and female. He said he saw that they were very good. Male and female are created in his image. You see in Genesis chapter two, they live in this lush, tranquil garden. They get to enjoy one another. They get to have one-on-one online connection with God. They could communicate with God at any time they want. They can hear from God at any time they want. And this is a beautiful picture. And in fact, uh, Genesis chapter 2 ends with Adam and Eve. It says they are both naked and they are unashamed. It's a beautiful picture. 
both naked and unashamed. Nothing's bothering them. It's complete and utter peace. And then in Genesis chapter 3, what happens? Peace is fractured. Male and female, Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. And once they rebel against God, they begin to hide. Um, They begin to lie. They begin to blame each other. They blame the devil. And then you even see peace fractured from that point on. You even see their very first children, um, Cain and Abel. One kills the other. Then you see peace fractured throughout um, history. You see this happen throughout the Israelites. The Israelites, in fact, they fought to have peace. They, they strived their whole entire existence to find rest and find a promised land, and yet they did not find it. There's moments where they find glimpses and hopes of peace, but everything that they strive for, they never saw, at least physically. Yet, throughout the Bible, there's this promise of peace And this promise of peace would not happen through an action, but rather this promise of peace would happen through a person, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is going to be the one who's going to restore peace that is in a broken world. But what kind of peace is it? That's what we're going to see in God's word this morning. And so I'm going to unpack a really chaotic narrative. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up... I'm hearing, I, I did not grow up in a Christian home at first. My parents became believers later on. And so the, one of the first believers that I knew was my grandmother. So we would all go to my grandma's house on Christmas Eve every single year. And every single year, I, this is probably one of the only chapters of the Bible I would hear every single year was Luke chapter 2. And it was one of those moments I have, like, I have, I don't even know how many siblings, I mean, I, mean, I know how many siblings I have. I don't even know how many cousins I have. There was probably 70 or so of us in this room packed into my grandmother's house. And my grandmother, we would all be chaotic, and somehow she just had this voice she could speak, and then all of a sudden, she's going to start reading Luke chapter 2, and everything would be quiet. And then she would always say this, and it was always funny to me. She'd say, you know, Grant, my, grandma, my grandfather passed. Um, I never got to meet my grandfather. But she would say, you know, Granddaddy would always say that he wishes that we could buy a big old warehouse and we can all live in it together. And then we all kind of looked up at each other like, oh, no, God, please don't ever let that happen, right? But it was this calming sense that we would read this narrative, and it seemed so calming in our family. But I want to tell you, this narrative is pretty chaotic. But in the middle of this chaos you're going to see this glimpse of peace. And it's in Luke chapter 2. I'll start in verse 1. Here's the chaos that begins right away. It says, In those days there was a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were to be registered, each to his own Town. Now, we see this character. His name is Caesar Augustus, better known as Octavian. Now, you, some of you might know that character if you've watched Night at the Museum. Octavian's this little Roman soldier that's there in the, in the museum, and he's the one who's going against, uh, you know, the cowboy character. Uh, I think it's Owen Wilson's character, Jedediah Smith. And he's the one, even though he's this small character in this movie, he's actually a big character in Roman history. He's the one who is seen as this emperor who would restore Rome to 
this giant, massive empire. He arrogantly saw himself as the savior of the world. He would actually call himself the savior of the world. He made a statement about Rome. He said, I founded bricks and I made Rome marble. Many people would even see him as a divine character. There are even some inscriptions that call Octavian divine. And right now, he seems to be in control of what was called the world then. It was centered around Rome. And what he's doing is he's taxing people so that he would have more and more control. Hence why there is a census. He's trying to figure out where everybody lives so I can tax them so I can get more powerful. And so this is not peace. This is actually world domination read, led by a narcissistic, wicked emperor. And then it goes down in verse 4. Look at what it says. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So we have a familiar story. And Luke's goal in writing this story, Luke is writing this to show the events surrounding uh, Jesus's birth. Now, what's interesting here is you have Mary who's, and Joseph who are betrothed to one another. It's sort of like an engagement, but there's something that happens that we're all familiar with. She's a virgin who was told by an angel that she was going to have a son. Now, most people most likely would have not believed her. We, if we would have met someone, a teenage girl that said, I'm having a baby, but I'm a virgin, we probably would not believe her either. And here they are, they have to move because of the census. They have to relocate so that Joseph can register. And where does he register? The, town, the city of David, which, by the way, has many um, uh, theological implications of why Jesus can be called the king. It's a beautiful picture. But here they are, they're in the town of Bethlehem. Uh, by the way, there's no, there's no one in the scripture they say they actually rode on a donkey. We can assume that they did because it's somewhere between 80 and 90 miles they would have had to travel and she's pregnant, which was pretty rough back then or at any point in history for a pregnant woman to walk that far, 80 to 90 miles. And this is a chaotic scene. They have to find a place. There's no room for them to stay in inns. So they end up in a stable. And this is this announcement that peace has finally come to the world. So now we're seeing the chaos, the smoke starting to clear, this beautiful scene. Jesus is born and he's laying in a manger. Now, the most important announcement of all time who would God choose to make this announcement? Look in verse 8. It says, And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you 
Uh, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, a multitude of angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. What's the word, church? Peace among those with whom he is well pleased. I love this part of the narrative because so many, so often we'll focus on the first seven verses of Jesus being born in a manger and swaddling clothes. But this part of the narrative is really powerful because the first people that would announce the most wonderful news of all time are shepherds. And there are shepherds that are out in the fields. In those days, shepherds in Palestine were considered some of the lowest class of people. They were seen as dirty outcasts. Their job prohibited them from frequent participation of religious rituals of their day. There were even certain laws that caused shepherds to be discriminated against. In addition, Shepherds were seen as sort of untrustworthy men. They were seen as rough around the edges. They were kind of like seen as pirates. And so you can imagine them in like leathery skin. They're dirty. You can imagine like if you've ever seen Alaskan bush people. This is kind of what they would have felt like or or been seen like, sort of outcasts of society. And these guys are the ones that that the angel appears to, to say, I want you to go herald this good news. I want you to tell the world that Christ is born. And we're told that this angel appears to them and he announces them to go to Bethlehem, in which we can assume was close because the text says that they were in the same region. And they would find this newborn baby who would be the savior of the world. And as the angel is telling them, Then it says that they were surrounded by a multitude of heavenly hosts, a multitude of angels. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but angels in the Bible don't appear to people a lot. Now, it feels like it does because you're reading through the Bible. You say, wow, the angel shows up to talk to Moses. An angel shows up and talks to Abraham. Uh, You you have all these stories that happen one after the next. But I want you to see see this. Like angels show up about less than 20 times in the Bible over a 1,500-year period of time. And so if an angel shows up to you, it's a really big deal. Now, most of the time, the angels show up to a prophet. You see the angels show up to Mary. You see the angels show up to um, Elizabeth and Zechariah. And so, you know, okay, these are kind of key figures. But now an angel shows up to shepherds. We don't even know their names. They're out in the field. They think maybe no one sees them. No one knows it. They look at themselves in the lowest part of the totem pole of society. And what does God do? He goes to them and he talks to them and says, that you are the ones that I want to herald the most important news of all time at this point. And in verse, 30, verse 13, the angels appear to them in plural. They're singing by giving this announcement. And what do they sing to these unlikely candidates? Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. 
And from this, we have a really popular hymn that we sing every Christmas. And it was written by Charles Wesley, and it's called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And one of the first lines of the song, or the hymn, it says, Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners, what? Reconciled. But that's not actually what the angels say. So how did Charles Wesley get the theology to be able to say this is the kind of peace that we're talking about? Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Where did he get that idea? Well, he actually gets it from this narrative of Luke's gospel. Because the angels saying peace here in Luke chapter 2 is not the first time peace has been mentioned around the birth of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, it's probably on your very same page as you have your Bible open. If you even look back to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 at the very end is the story of John the baptizer's birth. And it has his dad. His dad is Zechariah. He's this prophet. And he is overjoyed that his son is to be born. Like he is like, man, I'm so proud that I am going to be a daddy. And he's singing this song. And the Bible says that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's so overjoyed that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's prophesying about what his son is going to be like. And so I'm not going to read the whole song of Zechariah, but I'll read the tail end of it. Look at what it says in verse 76. He talks about his son. This is Zechariah talking about his son, John the baptizer, and his relationship with Jesus. He says, and you, child, will be called the, the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord. You're going to go and prepare the way of Jesus. And he says, to give, verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. And what's Jesus going to do? In the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of, what's the word? Peace. So Zechariah says, Jesus is going to come and make a way for us for peace. And then what is he going to do? What's the themes around peace? He says he's going to bring salvation and he's going to bring forgiveness of sin. Salvation and forgiveness of sin. And so what Luke is unpacking here with um, Zechariah, what Luke is unpacking here with the angels is peace, but it's a particular kind of peace. It's the kind of peace that Charles Wesley wrote about. It's God and sinners reconciled. That's, that's the kind of peace that he's talking about. Because when Zechariah describes it, it's peace, but it's about salvation and forgiveness of sin. It's about um, men and women being reconciled and being united with God. Now, I know as you read this, you've memorized it in a very specific way because we know the song we would sing, Peace on Earth and Goodwill Toward Men. And so I know we can read this and kind of get tripped up because the ESV says, uh, Peace on Earth among those whom he is well pleased. The NIV says, uh, God to, Glory to God in the highest and on earth to peace on whom, whom 
his favor rest. And so you might go, wait a minute, growing up, I understood it as peace and goodwill toward men. Where does this idea come from? Why is it different in the NIV or the uh, ESV? Well, this actually comes from the, the whole idea of peace and goodwill toward men. It actually comes from the old King James translation. And it's almost universally understood by all the translators that the King James took a word which is translated to goodwill or favor. And so here's a fun little Greek lesson for you. They actually read it as an accusative instead of a genitive. Now, I'm not going to explain all that, but basically here's what this means, all right? Instead of being translated goodwill toward men, it should be translated like this. And it's a little clunky, so I'm going to try to my best to explain it. Peace toward men to whom God has goodwill on whom his favor rests. That's how it should be translated. Now you're like, I'm going to stick with goodwill towards men. All right, I get it. Either way, here's what we need to know that it, that it means. Here's the intent behind this phrase. It was like saying there was, there was ill will towards men, but now there is goodwill towards men. And what Luke is getting at with Zechariah, what Luke is getting at here with the angels, is the peace that we're talking about is not peace between us or within us. Rather, it's a peace between us and God. So when the angels speak of peace, it's not a peace on earth that would end all wars. It's not to stop Rome from spreading violence, at least at the moment. Rather, when the angels speak of peace, it is what Charles Wesley wrote about. It's God and sinners reconciled. It's a peace in the heart. That's what it is. Paul talks about it this way in 2 Corinthians. Paul doesn't use the word peace here, but he used the word reconciliation. It's the same idea in the Bible. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, I'll read in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, not counting their ill will against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is a powerful statement that Paul says at the end of the section because he's saying this is what peace means when we are reconciled to God. And how is it that we are reconciled to God? The very end of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus, who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life. He put sin upon Jesus so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. I love what the reformer um, Martin Luther calls this verse. He calls it the great exchange. My sin goes to Jesus 
and Jesus' righteousness is, is given to me. It's imputed to me. So in other words, I, there was ill will between me and God because of my sin. There's no way I could be reconciled to God because I can't, I can't work hard enough or strive hard enough. I can't go to enough uh, Christmas services to, to earn. I can't give enough to people that need it during the holidays to earn the righteousness of God. What had to happen? This great exchange. My sin is put on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness is put on me. And this is how God and sinners would be reconciled. This is what it means to have peace. That really peace exists between us and God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Paul calls this reconciliation. Luke calls it peace. It's the same thing. So if you are here this morning and you are looking for peace, I want to tell you that peace is found in nothing but Jesus and Jesus alone. I just watched um, the documentary on uh, Prince Harry and Meghan moving away from the royal family living in the United States. And I just watched the end of it, and it's a really sad story. I mean, they grew up in this royal family, and they have all this pressure, and, and you're like, I don't feel sad for them. They have this luxurious house, and they, you know, like all this. But, but it's really sad as I listen to it. I'm like, man, it's so hard. I can't imagine the pressure that they feel to get away from that. And I remember what Meghan was saying at the very end. She's saying, I want peace. She goes, every single year, I want peace. And what she means is I want people to leave me alone. Stop asking me questions. I don't want this expectation put on me. And I get it. I feel that. But the real peace is found when we are reconciled to God. Because once we are reconciled to God, then we can find peace in other things as well. And this is why this peace needs to come forth, come first and foremost in our minds and our hearts. And this is why we can sing this beautiful song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Peace on Earth, Mercy Mild, God and Sinners Reconciled. And we sing that sometimes, and I'm like, this doesn't feel like peace is on earth, but it is because Christ has come. And that's how we can experience um, peace in the here and now. No, it's not, it's not perfect peace because we're not in glory with him yet, but it's already but not yet. We can experience here now because we know I have been reconciled to God. There was ill will because of my sin, and now Christ has come, and there is no ill will between us and God because Jesus made the sacrifice for us. This great exchange that happens is why you and I can experience peace even right now now. And the angels sang of this peace to a group of shepherds who were out in the field who would have thought everyone was against them, who would have thought there is ill will between them and God and them and everyone else. And the angel says, no, you can have peace. You can have peace. And the shepherds are overjoyed. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you be overjoyed to hear this message that God sees me and he knows me and he loves me. And then what happens next in verse 15? It says, when the angels went away from them, from the shepherds into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and saw the baby laying in a manger. And, while they, and when they saw it, they made known 
the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they have seen and heard, all all they have heard and seen as it had been told to them. Here's what I love about this story. The shepherds are a great picture of the gospel because what they heard, they immediately went and shared. And this gospel, the angels call it the good news. The angels said, be not afraid. I come to bring you good news. And they heard the good news and they shared the good news. And that's what the gospel is. It's an announcement that Christ has come and he's the savior of the world. And this announcement was first given into the hands of the shepherds to then go and share. And I love that God does this. And I find this humorous and fascinating that God would do this with shepherds throughout the Bible. You even have stories like you have Moses. What's Moses doing before he's going to lead his people into the Exodus? What is it? He is out tending his sheep. He's a shepherd. What do you have, David, the greatest king in Israel's history? Who was David before he was king? He was a young shepherd boy. You have God who, in Israel's history, calling up a a young prophet, a, 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 a guy by the name of Amos, that before he would be a prophet, what was he? A shepherd. And God would use these social outcasts to then go and do something bigger and better for the kingdom of God. And he does it right here at the very beginning of the gospel narrative. Why? Because God chooses things and people that no one would expect. Because that's how vast and that's how deep and that's how beautiful the message of the gospel is. And God would do something extraordinary over and over again for ordinary or less, or what we would call less than ordinary people. Why? Because he loves to show off his power. And he loves to show off his amazing love. And this is who he chose. And I want you to even think about the birth of Jesus. When our baby is born, who do we want to come and see? His close friends and family. I mean, I'm, I know about the firstborn. I remember when Jess and I, when Finn was born, we go to the mall and anybody, people are weird with babies. They're like, let me touch him. I know. Right? I heard this one lady, she was smoking a cigarette. She's like, oh, let me touch. And like, she tries to put her hand in Finn's mouth. I'm like, no. Right? Get away from us. You know, this is close friends and family. Like, right? Protect my baby. Get away from me. Right? And who does God do? He says, no, I want to invite shepherds. I want to invite shepherds to come. And not only that, I'm going to invite shepherds to go and share that Jesus, the king of the world, is born. I have no idea if these shepherds became believers or not. It just says that they return glorifying and praising God for what they have heard and seen. But I can imagine it would be hard to doubt at this point. You just saw angels. You just saw Jesus. But what they did display is a response to when a person really encounters true peace with God. 
And this is why Paul, when he talks about reconciliation, he goes, yes, you are reconciled with God. It's vertical, but then there's a horizontal response to it because not only are you reconciled to God, he says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 18, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And what did he do next? He didn't just reconcile us to him, but he gave you and I the ministry of reconciliation. And then he says this in verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. You know what this means? You and I are ambassadors of peace, that we do exactly what the shepherds did, what they heard and saw. They could not stop glorifying and praising God. Everywhere they went, this is what they did. So I hope that you can see this message, even in the intent of the narrative and of the nativity scene. Even as you set up your nativity scene, hopefully maybe you've already done that, or you drive by one in someone's yard or a church that you see in the front, and you see the shepherds, I want you to think this is who God would invite to be a part of this narrative. This is who God would invite to be a part of heralding the gospel message. I know there's wise men there too, but let me say the wise men probably showed up a few months later, by the way. Just don't mean to mess up your nativity scene. If you bring them out in May or June, it's probably more accurate, just saying. But the shepherds, they are there to show you that the gospel of Jesus invites all people to come and bow before the king. And he says, it's goodwill that of anyone with whom he is well pleased meaning anyone can come and worship. That's the peace that he offers, friend. These shepherds show us that you don't have to be the right kind of person. You don't have to be smart, overly religious, or perfect. Peace means that God invites you to come as you are. So however you see yourself this morning, a pagan, an outsider, educated or uneducated, wise or simple, rich or poor, black or white, male or female, the song of the angels to the shepherds is an invitation of all. That when you encounter the Christ, you become a worshiper. And the good news of the gospel is this, that he will take whatever you claim to be and make you into who he wants you to be, a son and a daughter. Why? Because he became sin so that you and I would be right before God. And this is what it means with God and sinners reconciled. Peace is found in Christ, in Christ alone. And so if this season stirs up things for you that maybe you feel like an outcast, maybe no one sees you or knows you, maybe you feel like you are too far gone for God to extend his love for you and grant you peace, I want to say to you that God would go out into the fields and find a group of shepherds and sing peace over them. This is what he will do for any of us. Maybe you feel like you don't have the right talent or gifts or the right eloquent words to say or have anything to offer, that God would choose shepherds to herald the message of peace, that he will use any of us to herald the message of peace. That God's love does not discriminate and we are all called to be his ambassadors of peace, that we would go into the world and just share the message of the gospel. And that's what we can do this morning. And so 
as I looked over this series, I thought I would end it this way. We'll end it on Christmas Eve, actually, but kind of end it this way. And instead of giving you a bunch of points on here's things to do to make your Christmas less stressful, here's things to do to get out of the frantic, busy season of the holidays, maybe it's just stopping and saying, listen, the God of peace has come to dwell among us. In this story and where we are in the story, yes, we started with peace in the garden. And yes, it's been chaotic since sin, and it's still chaotic. But I want to tell you that since the moment Christ entered the world, the hope of peace begins to unfold before our eyes. And we can actually begin to experience peace right now because of Christ. And we'll have peace eternally with God forever in glory, but we can experience it right now. And so the God of peace has come to dwell among us. And he comes to bring favor to whoever would worship him. And so maybe our response isn't, here's three or four things that you can do. Maybe it's just, maybe we need to believe as shepherds that we would experience this peace and know that we experience this peace and we would leave as the shepherds glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Would that be our posture? That we know the God of peace and that we would experience that peace every day of our lives by glorifying God and worshiping him and proclaiming all that we have seen and heard. God help us. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray this season for us would be one of peace. That we would see the angels out in the fields going toward the least of these and singing peace over them. That same love extends to any of us in this room this morning. So for those in this room who feel too far gone, who feel like an outcast, who feel ashamed, who feel like God's love cannot extend to them, Lord, may they see this narrative of one of your great love, that Lord, not only would you invite them to see baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger, but not only that, but you would tell them to tell the world of this great message. God, help us to rest in this wonderful story and know that we all are shepherds in some way. There was once ill will with us and God, but because of Christ, who took on our sin and died in our place, Lord, there's goodwill and favor toward men. And so God, I pray, Lord, that we would experience that peace through repenting of our sins and believing in the gospel. And for those of us who have repented and believed, Lord, may we do what the shepherds did when they heard, is to just leave glorifying and praising God for all that we've seen and heard. God, if we've experienced this peace, may we carry that through this season. May we carry that with our families. May we carry that in our workplaces and our neighborhoods. May people see this peace that we have with God and they would see that something is truer and better than the world around us. God, may we walk in that peace as we know that peace. In Jesus' name, amen.